preeminently the time to speak the truth frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Welcome to the 8th episode of American History 2. Today we'll be looking at America in the 1930s, which inevitably means we'll be thinking about the Great Depression and the New Deal. Um, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Malcolm Craig. Hello, Mark. And we're also delighted to be joined today by Alistair Duffy. And Alistair's a PhD student here at the University of Edinburgh, and he's working on the 1920s and 30s in American history. So welcome, Alistair. Hello. Thank you for having me. So before we begin, uh, could you take a minute just to tell us what exactly your doctoral project is? Of course. Um, so I'm mainly working on journalism history and the multiple ways in which journalism interacts and intersects with American political culture. Um, my doctoral project looks at how one section of the press um, that emerged during the 1920s, the syndicated political columnist, began to offer an intelligible kind of expert analysis of problems of the Great Depression. Um, and kind of looking specifically at how the assessment of those issues by columnists created problems for political leaders like Herbert Hoover. Oh, right. Okay. So is that guys like Walter Lippmann and stuff? Or is it? Yes, exactly. Walter Lippmann um, and David Lawrence, a few of them kind of around that went on to have long careers into the 1960s, 1970s as well. Oh, good. Well, excellent. You'll be able to keep us straight about some of the details of the, the Great Depression era. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, moving on to the, the, the Great Depression, you know. So I think, Malcolm, you know, it's been a while since I set you one of these two-minute challenges where you have to sum up a really long and really multifaceted uh, period of time in, a very, uh, in only 120 seconds. So here I want you to accomplish what I would say is quite an easy task and tell us how and why the Great Depression comes about and how does it get its name? Right, well, I mean, it's the Great Depression because it is the biggest financial and economic catastrophe of the 20th century. Nothing else even compares to it in terms of a financial disaster. Why it comes about is quite complex, and I'm sure uh, Alistair and yourself will be able to uh, drop in with some further commentary on this uh, at some point. In the, in the 1920s is an era of, of great prosperity in America. Uh, there's great confidence in the stock market, and there's lots of speculation. People are spending money they don't have on stocks. They're buying uh, on margin. And essentially what that means is they'll put a very small amount of their own money into buying a stock and the brokers who are encouraging them to buy it will put in the majority of the cash. So essentially they owe uh, all the kind of the, most of the cash to the broker. But they're speculating on the fact that stocks will keep getting higher and higher and higher. So that the broker's percentage as a, as a percentage of the value of the stock will decrease. Now, the problem comes when the value of the stock decreases. Uh, so these people, when they've bought on very high margins, so say they've put up 20% of the value of the stock, 
and the broker has put up 80% so of the money to buy it initially. When the value of the stock starts dropping, they can't say to the broker, oh, I'm not going to owe you that money anymore. They have to either sell the stock or give the broker money to make up for the difference. Uh, what happens is, so people either have to sell their stocks or stump up cash to the brokers. Around about September, October 1929, lots of people are in this situation. And there's kind of like bits of panics about the stock market. It's all very, this is all incredibly complicated. The two minute challenge is a, you know, it makes me, it gives you me a great, you can't out now. it gives me a great depression <laughs> even thinking about it. Uh, what happens is people start panicking about their stock. The value of stocks is dropping. Okay. People either have to stump up the cash or sell their stocks. Loads of people tell their brokers to sell the stocks. This means there's more stock coming onto the market, which means it brings the price of them stocks further and further down. So more people then panic and dump more stocks onto the market. Institutional investors try to prop up the market by putting money into it and buying stocks, but that doesn't work for very long. Prices start to go into free fall. Panic ensues because of the nature of financial communications mm -hmm. at that point. People can't get accurate enough reports on prices on a minute by minute basis. They're getting them hours old. So they're just going, just sell the stocks, just get rid of this stuff because everyone's panicking, everyone's selling. Everyone's dumping stock onto the market. Those who haven't invested in stocks and shares, they also start to panic because the American banking system is panicking as well. So they start doing what's known as bank runs. They start taking all their money out of the system. They just have the money in a box under the bed, all that kind of thing. So suddenly the stock market is crashing. Everything's falling apart there. People are hauling vast amounts of money out of the, out of the banks. And pretty soon after Tuesday, October 29th, 1929, the global economy is in the biggest financial disaster of the 20th century, in part due to what's known as this, the Wall Street crash, mm -hmm. when confidence in stocks just drops. Although that is a very brief stock market focused explanation of why the Great Depression happens. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes on. Yeah, I'm going to give you some kudos there. I've never seen you attempt economic history before, but that, that, that and I'm never going to attempt <laughs> economic history again. Yeah, I mean, Alice, is there anything you you wanted to add to that? I say, I mean, the the image of the Great Depression, um, at least the initial onset of the Great Depression, is very much anchored in that you know issue of crisis of the Wall Street crash and the fact that no one can really control what's going on. Um, but if you do look back into the 1920s, you have that image of the 1920s being an era of confidence. And what really happened, I think, with the stock market crash was that confidence was shattered. Um, but if you look at the, I mean, historians continue to, as you say, continue to debate the, the origins of the Great Depression, but there was a depression ongoing through the 1920s and, and I mean, since the First World War in the agricultural sector. Yeah. And it's often forgotten that the depression for many farmers in, in America had been old news by the time that the Wall Street crash came around. Why is there such a uh, an agricultural depression in the United States in the 20s? What's, what's causing that? It's really the, I mean, with the First World War, um, farmers are kind of, and, and other sectors of the US economy are asked to, to ex, um, expand, to cope with the, the demand of the war. Um, and then as soon as the war ends, then there's all this, you know, 
additional money um, and surplus in the economy that is just sitting there, and the farmers are left to try and recover their, you know, their their holdings by that point, and it's just um, the nineteen twenties is the period when that just is not handled. And there's there's minimal government support for the farm sector, exactly as well. So there's, there's no one there to prop up the prices. Yeah, and I mean uh, one of the other thing reasons that can be given after the kind of stock market crash is is the introduction of protectionist tariff. But we have a rule on this podcast that we never discuss the tariff. The, the t- um, or any tariff so, so at the, all. Yeah, so exactly. So if anyone wants to know more about how the tariff influenced the Great Depression, go and find another podcast the, the or word, read a book. The words, um, the, words, <laughs> the words Smoot and Holly shall nary pass our lips. Exactly. God, we sound lame. <laughs> so, I mean, actually, that, so the, ta- the tariff I wanted to use is a smooth transition over to, to Hoover, um, who you mentioned, you know, you're sort of, the impact that syndicated journalists have on him. I mean, I think it's Brian Burdno refers to Hoover as like one of the most tragic figures in American history. You know, he sort of says, you know, he was a great humanitarian who will forever live in history as the uncaring, do-nothing president who, you know, Hoover is Hoover bad, Franklin Roosevelt brilliant. You know, like, do you think uh, Hoover's been unfairly treated by history? Um... I would say that the image of Hoover as having presided or had a failed presidency is true. I mean, he didn't he didn't handle the Great Depression, but the image that um, or that kind of simple image of Hoover is is really not as simple as that. Um, he so the connection between him and the Depression is far more complex and. While Hoover is rightly thought of as a failed president, he um, he did break a number of precedents, mm-hmm. and he, I would say that he kind of was a lot of the policies that he sort of initiated in the latter stages of um, his term were kind of seen as precedents for what went on to become some of the New Deal legislation, um, but he had a very traditional view on how the role of the federal government. Um, and he tried to sort of keep a balance there that um, just was sort of cut against the grain of what really should through. It seemed to be that he was doing nothing to support the depression, mm-hmm. but in reality, he was, in his mind, protecting traditional ideas that were central to American um, American kind of culture. So, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you'll be able to speak with more authority on this, that Hoover was more interested in kind of this idea of, is it associationalism? Was Hoover's thing about volunteerism, churches, community groups and all that kind of thing, essentially taking charge, a kind of, you know, late 1920s, early 1930s, big society? Exactly. And he was, you know, he, he believed his political philosophy was, you know, his belief in what's been called rugged individualism. And it was that Anybody who, you know, wants to make a go of it, wants to make a success of themselves, should be doing it off in the off their own back through initiative. So the government should be should not be making, um, you know, offering handouts. And I suppose in his view, he saw any kind of federal intervention in that sense as a as one step away from a sort of quick spiral into socialism. Yeah. So, you know, Mark, you were about to say something. No, I was actually just going to, I mean, like, so obviously, uh, this isn't, isn't your time period, Malcolm, and it's not like, you know, it's a domestic policy kind of thing, Her- Herbert Hoover. So, 
how how have you generally viewed Hoover? Like, as, as someone who hasn't, you know, obviously you've read widely, more widely than most people on, on most aspects of American history, but how how is Herbert Hoover fit into your conception um, as an American president at the time? He's the 20th century James Buchanan. You're going that far? No, I'm not going that far. <laughs> he's, not, he's, nowhere, he's nowhere near Buchanan. I mean, Buchanan really was a... A, a do-nothing president who did nothing to avert one of the greatest disasters in American history in the term of the Civil War. I think, I mean, I'd agree with, you know, with Alistair that, that Hoover is, he has a, a radically different mindset. He has a different view of the role and nature of the federal government and what it should do to involve itself or not involve itself in, in American society. And at the tail end of his his administration, he does start to take and correct me if I'm wrong here, he does start to take federal action, which lays some of the groundwork for what we'll see later. So he, he, he gradually kind of changes his opinion, comes to the realisation that some form of federal intervention is going to be necessary to get round the, this financial disaster, economic disaster. He does. I mean, he, he places... Um, I mean, one of the major criticisms of Hoover is that he placed the balancing of the federal budget at the center of really whatever of kind of maintaining any kind of economic standing domestically and internationally um and i mean i suppose a good way to think of hoover is maybe this isn't the best kind of image but i suppose if you if you think of the, the depression as this kind of fire this raging fire anything like hoover was kind of wanting to provide buckets for <laughs> The American, you know, American people to help themselves put out the fire, whereas somebody like Roosevelt or Roosevelt came in and kind of stood with a powerful fire hose and just <laughs> and decided we have federal fire department. Yeah, yes, we we like a good analogy on American history too. Yeah, <laughs> but um, and I, the one thing as well, I think you know, as if Hoover Hoover looked back into history, and you know, he may well have done, he would have seen that most recessions in America were recessions, you know, they went in, you would have a bad couple of years and then you would eventually come out of them, you know, and and by the standards of, you know, the, the 1890s and 1870s where a government intervention would have been even less than it was what Hoover was doing, Hoover probably thought that, look, I just need to keep a steady hand on the till here and not plunge this into any more crisis and eventually things will come back. But obviously underestimated it. And, uh, I mean, what was it by the time Roosevelt comes in, you've got a third of working men unemployed, is that so? I mean, no one could, I mean, it's, you know, the benefit of historical hindsight, no one could foresee the scale of the of the global catastrophe. And I mean, that's something you need to emphasise. It's not just an American catastrophe. It's a global catastrophe that has yeah. impacts all over the world. You know, Europe, Africa, you know, Australasia, everywhere is affected by the Great Depression. So Yeah, and I think also to bring it back to what we were talking about in our previous podcast, who is a Republican out of the Teddy Roosevelt tradition, you know, as then, you know, we were praising Roosevelt's uh, sort of progressivism and willingness to intervene. Hoover is of that tradition. He was Woodrow Wilson, the Democratic progressive, like, you know, his, one of his most trusted advisors. So, yeah, Hoover's a lot more complex than I think uh, most people would describe his yeah. legacy, because most people probably do think in terms of the, the yeah, like centuries James Buchanan. Yeah. yeah. And you know, not a man without sympathy. You know, for the, the plight of, of Americans. So, so Hoover's position, I think, I think we've grasped is a little more nuanced than, than is sometimes made out to be. So let's shift to the aftermath of the, the 32 presidential election. And Franklin D. Roosevelt wins. 
and wins big. And he has his famous kind of like slogan about, you know, fearing nothing but fear itself. From 1933 onwards, the federal government under Roosevelt is now determined to take action on like three main things, relief, reform and recovery. So, Mark, Mr. Domestic Policy, uh, how do they go about doing that and what does it involve? Well, I mean, to put it really simply, it probably follows the, the well-known quote of, uh, above all, do something. Um, uh, a very kind of trial and error approach to governing, you know, the famous first hundred days, all these kind of eager people coming to Washington, desperate to, you know, with so many different ideas and Roosevelt makes the most of them and his brain trust and everything and, you know, throws everything at the wall to see what sticks, basically. Um, and they're building on, you know, the sort of his, his cousins or fifth cousins progressive legacy, but going further. Um, I mean, one of the things they do is they take away one of the progressive's main achievements, you know, they repeal prohibition, um, you know, an eminently sensible decision in all, all manners, um, in terms of money and just, well, allowing people to, to drink if they want to. Um, but I mean, in terms of relief, recovery and reform, so the relief aspects obviously is about tackling straight away the crisis moment they are, they are in, you know, when Roosevelt comes in, banks are closing left, right and centre, so Roosevelt, uh, initiates the bank holiday um, and um, tries, to, tries to kind of encourage a bit of calm uh, to stop the crisis plunging further. Does his famous f first fireside chat um, on, on the banking crisis, um, appeals to Americans to, you know, put their money back into banks rather than hiding it under the bed. And, you know, and is largely successful um, in this, yeah. Just, just to clarify for the listeners, what, what is meant by the bank holiday? Because it sounds quite good. Well, that, that's one of the points of it. Yeah. I mean, like that. The idea. I mean, I, I think did, did, did Hoover not do a bank moratorium or something like that? So, so Roosevelt's a master of making things. I mean, his campaign theme song is "Happy Days Are Here Again." You know, Roosevelt wants Americans to believe and have regain that confidence. I mean, who's regaining a confidence by a moratorium? You know, uh, so, so I mean, the bank holiday just basically means there can be no bank activity, and for a few days, America doesn't actually deal in money. It's. Uh, it has sort of these kind of bizarre aspects of history. Um, so moving on to the, the recovery, so that's obviously, sorry, to reform, um, where this is where a lot of kind of ideas are thrown to kind of slightly change how the federal government um, interacts, at least temporarily with its people. So you have, for example, the National Industry Recovery Administration, if I said that right, I think, um, which tries to set wages and hours and tries to keep people in keep people in a job and you have and that the, a lot of these the kind of the reform ones are the ones where you have varying success and you the supreme court will knock down a lot of these initiatives but in the second new deal especially which is from 1935 onwards you have the introduction of the kind of recovery aspects and most importantly i would say social security uh, obviously kind of providing an old age pension and the beginnings of the welfare state in america um, but I mean, I feel like I've rabbited on quite a bit there, Alistair. Is there anything you find particularly important? Well, I mean, as you as you mentioned, um, as you mentioned there, I mean, the most important thing because sometimes with the with the New Deal, I find that a little bit of the history gets lost in the names of you know these um, you know alphabet like, agencies exactly yeah. and. But I think you know the main idea behind that was to show that that the the federal government is doing something to help the crisis, and the constant um, 
the constant attempts to be seen to do that are, are important and also you know FDR coming in I mean it seemed like a breath of fresh air because he's appealing directly to the public um, in many ways the sort of most important part or the most of important of the three R's was you know in hindsight was was recovery which maybe didn't maybe recovery is, is when you think of the new deal recovery isn't the first thing um, that comes to mind you know because the economy system. doesn't fully recover until after the second world war exactly you know, yeah. and and I mean there's the idea that when the new deal started to take shape that really at the center of it was that middle hour reform that it was it was a long-term vision that reform was you know showing up the defenses for it to stop anything like this happening again and to help sections of society that had lost out um, in the rapid expansion of the United States since the end of the 19th century. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's exactly what uh, historian David Kennedy, uh, he points out referring to kind of, you know, the, you know, things like welfare, pensions, all these kind of things, is, you know, uh, that the New Deal gave to countless Americans who had never had much of it a sense of security and with it a sense of having a stake in their country. Which is an interesting kind of you know, approach to it. A lot of it is more a sense of, of maybe there's a fourth R, reassurance, uh, that you know it gives Americans a sense that someone, you know, and not I mean not all Americans. There's a lot of criticism of the New Deal, but you know a sense of reassurance, a sense of someone is looking after their interests, even if there's no immediate effect. Yeah, and I mean it's and it's also it's another one of these things where because we look back at history, we just. We expect it to happen because we because it happened like you know whereas like you know the historic like Martin Keller argues you know that the New Deal was as exceptional in terms of its worldwide counterparts as the founding of the New Republic. Now I'm not sure if he's going too far there or not, but it's a pretty bold statement to say. Um, but I mean I think you you, you both can hinted at that there this you know has been one of the most politically influenced historical debates, I think, about the New Deal. I mean, this is where, like, we're, we're the founding of modern America where people who are politically influenced uh, will have an opinion on the New Deal, and a lot of times that's manifested itself in the historiography. Um, I mean, I don't know, Malcolm, if you want, particularly wanted to touch on the, the Amity Slaves example. Uh, actually, I think we'll, uh, we'll come back to that in a moment because it's useful to think of mm. the kind of the baseline yeah. Uh, of historiography that exists before we get to a more recent 21st uh, century kind of interpretations of it. You know, I'd ask, you know, uh, Alistair, you know, is it the case that the most recent interpretations are the best? Because it's sometimes the case new sources, you know, new interpretations make all the scholarship invalid. Is that really the case when it comes to understanding the New Deal? Not, I mean, the interesting thing about the New Deal um, literature is, I mean, as, as, as Mark mentioned, um, it's high, it's always had, it always has been and always will be heavily politicized. And a lot of the, you know, the new, um, or more recent scholarship is no less kind of vibrant or engaging, but there is this critical baseline of Arthur Schlesinger, William Luchtenberg, um, Jane McGregor Burns, who were writing in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, 
all obviously probably from you know from the very like liberal mode, very involved in politics as well. Um, she allegedly went on to be part of um, very closely associated with the Kennedy administration. Yeah, I'm not a Schlesinger fan. No. <laughs> his his in in a historiographical aside, his journals are very yeah. very entertaining. Yeah. His comments on Nixon are brilliant, especially about Nixon's Nixon's grandkids causing a ruckus at a barbecue living next door to them and all that. Anyway, that's nothing yeah. to do with the New Deal. But, you know. but yeah, so I mean, basically, Luxembourg, Schlesinger and James Bergerberg, they all accept the New Deal as it was and sort of think that A, it was a good thing and B, it was, you know, it was, it was the right thing. It was, and I mean, whereas when you get into the 1960s, 1970s, you have, like, you know, people of the new left, people who are, like, you know, saying that the New Deal was actually, like, a missed opportunity. Like, you know, that that you know people were conned they wanted they should have gone further they should have done more reform than they actually did i mean i am very suspicious of this school of thought i mean it's written during you know the, the upheavals of the 60s and the, the vietnam war and questioning american you know exceptionalism or questioning whether american americans uh, always do the right thing which you know is underlies a lot of american historiography the whiggish interpretation of it but I mean, how do you feel about the new the, the new left school of thought on the New Deal? Well, I'd say what it did do was I mean, there'd been a very the, the historiography itself. Um, the one of the major things that comes out of a lot of the Schlesinger Luchtenberg material is that is you can just tell the proximity to the benefited from being so close to what had gone on, and they were still yeah. living in the in that sort of New Deal generation. So a lot of the material that they use is, is it's unparalleled. You can't get access to that again, really. Um, and the new left challenge just—I mean, if anything—restored the balance mm -hmm. of it. Started to started a debate, which is still going now. Um, and I mean, as you said, like the, some of the complaints about the New Deal being you know, not just that it didn't go far enough, but maybe that it was. I actually protected the capitalist system and actually made it stronger um, is another sort of side of that that debate. I was just going to say, but do you know, on that last point, protected the capitalist system, do you not know, think Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt will be here today and say, yes, yes, I did that. You know, you're welcome. You know, like, I mean, like, to me, both Roosevelts are essentially the great protectors of American capitalism because they save it from its its worst aspects. Um I don't know, but Malcolm, you wanted to. Jump well, I, mean, I was just going to say, actually, that, I mean, it's interesting the new left kind of critique of the of the New Deal not being radical enough. I mean, it very much echoes the contemporary critiques of the New Deal from figures who were involved in it, like you know, Vexford Tugwell, the brilliantly named Vexford Tugwell, <laughs> uh, springs to mind. Uh, who you know, at the time, I, I believe he was a uh, you know critiquing you know Roosevelt's policies for not going far enough. And that kind of like is a precursor to, I think, the, the new left historiography, that kind of like the, the more radical New Dealer, you know, interpretation uh, of what was going on. So again, I guess it comes back to the sort of the benefit of, of hindsight, because now, you know, looking at some of the issues that are coming up in political rhetoric today, um, issues of federal power and how far that goes and really what, almost what the New Deal unleashed um it's a it's a continual is a continual problem um so i mean as you say i mean the, the idea that the new deal didn't go far enough 
for many people who had actually been there at the time, I was thinking, no, we need to bring this back. We need to, um, I mean, especially a lot of, you know, the, the conservative opposition that um, took form around that issue um, and that continued right through until um, you know, the Nixon and the Reagan revolution. Um, yeah, it, it is a, it's a vital part of um, the historical debate. Or the, yeah, I mean, New Deal historiography is often, I mean, can be in, in a domestic American context, very, very politicised. I mean, one of the most successful recent volumes on it is, came out in 2007, Amity Schley's uh, The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, uh, a rather weighty volume, which I'm kind of attempting to hold up right now. <laughs> uh, and the, I always love the, the puff piece uh, on the, the cover. This new book is the finest history of the Great Depression ever written. A quote from the National Review, uh, noted uh, conservative uh, commentating uh, journal set up by William F. Buckley Jr. So I need to remember it's William F. Buckley Jr. Maybe that says all you need to know. But this was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It was a hugely, hugely popular and successful book. But it is it's politics as history. It is a justification in many ways for contemporary conservative economic yeah, policy. It's having your conclusion and then finding all the sources you need to come to that conclusion. Exactly. Rather than going in with an open mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, its use of evidence is is problematic. I think, you know, Schley's manipulation of evidence and misrepresentation of evidence is something that any any undergraduate writing an essay would get strung up for. You know, there's no way you know, you'd get away with what she does uh, with evidence. I mean, her the forgotten man of the title is is the businessman and the entrepreneur who's been forgotten in histories of the New Deal. Um, but our case is, is fundamentally flawed, problematic in the extreme. I think one of, one of our best examples, the one I like the most, is her thing about uh, these two businessmen called the Schechter brothers in New York, whom she portrays as, as kosher butchers, the small man, the forgotten man, fighting against you know, the leviathan of repressive, intrusive, federal government policy and all that kind of thing. Fine and well, an admirable story of American entrepreneurship. It's just not quite true. <laughs> I mean, the, the Schechter brothers were running a multi-million dollar meatpacking business, one of the biggest on the East Coast. They were not small businessmen. They were very, very successful, big businessmen. And this is what she does. She kind of does things like conflate the rich with the middle classes, the you new know, people who are running not corporations but big businesses, with struggling small businessmen, all that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it's they hardly qualify as struggling small businessmen. I mean, they're more like kind of very wealthy and well connected meatpacking moguls. Uh, I think Eric Rauchway, the historian, uh, provides a brilliant demolition of Schley's work in about um, five pages as well. Actually, <laughs> actually, the first the first three pages of it, or first two and a half pages or him talking about the New Deal generally. It only takes three pages to demolish the entire book. Uh, but he's, I think the best quote from Rauchway is that uh, he states that, if you call millions of paid workers unemployed, if you ignore the gross domestic product in favour of the stock market, if you confuse the rich with the middle class, if you fixate on the slightest connection between the Roosevelts and people who took a vague interest in Soviet art, you can just about paint a picture of the New Deal as a foreign graft onto American stock unhelpful to the ordinary American and to the overall United States economy. And nobody much will correct you, which says a lot for people not being interested in academic debates about the New Deal 
uh, in the wider popular context. But there's a really politicized piece of historiography, piece of historiography that serves political purpose. But I mean, uh, to, to give maybe the other side to what a conservative sitting here would say, is it not probably true that most accounts of the New Deal have been written by people who believed it was a good thing? Or by liberal-leaning academics, do you think? I mean, I'm just putting that out there. It'd be hard to argue it wasn't a good thing. What, what was Roosevelt going to do? You know, letting alone wasn't working. Things weren't getting any better by themselves. What was he going to do? I mean, admittedly, Roosevelt does a lot of stuff that doesn't work. And a lot of stuff, I mean, there are parts of the New Deal that were actively harmful. That, is, that part is not argued. Uh, but overall, what else could be done? The economy under the New Deal, despite fits and starts and bumps and alphabet soup agencies that weren't entirely successful, policies that were not as constructive as they could have been, the economy was on the way up. Okay, you get kind of like the a kind of mini depression uh, in '37, but the economy is on the way up. Unemployment is dropping. GDP is increasing. Mm -hmm. You know, the economy is recovering. It's getting better. I think the major point that's sometimes forgotten in any kind of recent um, literature that's coming out is again something that you know. Schlesinger and Luthenberg were aware of is that the difference with Roosevelt was that he was pragmatic, that he was flexible to the conditions of the time and the shifts, I mean one example as you say there, the, the recession or the, or the double dip recession we would call it now in 37 where he had started to slow down, I think it was he started to slow down um, spending on public works and then the the economy started to drop, drop again, unemployment went up, and it was all an attempt to, I think, balance the balance the federal budget. And as the economy bounced, he changed course and went back to spending. And that pragmatism, that approach, the ability to have, you know, the the experts around you to to give you that advice and then to move on is something that it was, you know, Roosevelt was one of the first to do that. Yeah, I mean, what, the the thing with Roosevelt that's interesting to me is the fact that you almost can't say, like, the Roosevelt, Roosevelt and the New Deal come as a package when you talk about the 1930s in a way that I don't think is true of other presidents. I don't think, for example, Lyndon Johnson comes exact, straight from the Great Society. I don't think, you know, Harry Truman comes attached with the square, the, the Fair Deal, sorry, um, when you're talking about, I mean, Roosevelt's presidency is more important like is is separate from the New Deal. Like Roosevelt himself was an inspiring leader, I think. Like, you know, he's he's hung on walls all over the United States. You know, he's elected, you know, more than any president ever will be because of the change in the rules to stop it happening again. I mean to me it's it's interesting how how important the sort of confidence Roosevelt gave the American people and, and how important the programmes were. Um and whether just a perfect meeting of the man in the moment or whether we've maybe given Roosevelt too much credit, or like, I mean, I I look back now and I still have questions about the time, but I just find it quite interesting that you can't literally separate it, and it might be because it's pragmatic. It's the New Deal is Roosevelt going, I'll do this, I'll do that. Like I I don't know. 
But and that doesn't lead to a lovely conclusion. I'm no, no, no. <laughs> no but, I, but I agree. I mean, some kind of, when you're thinking about kind of like, you know, presidential influence, and I think some presidents are totally inseparable from the times they live in. Lincoln and the Civil War. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't think of the Civil War without commenting on Lincoln and his role in that. You know, when you think about the 1930s and all that happens then, you can't separate that from Andrew Jackson, mm-hmm. you know, for example, who we talked about in a, an episode before. So, I mean, I think it is somewhat you know, unfair and kind of tending towards awkward great man history if you just focus on someone like you know, Roosevelt to the exclusion of all the other people who were significant in formulating the New Deal and enacting the New Deal. Yeah. And even the ordinary people, you know, the ordinary working people, the people unemployed who were affected by the New Deal, who were affected by the Great Depression, the people of the Dust Bowl, mm-hmm. who like travelled to California or something that, you know, John Steinbeck, you know, captured. Uh, in, in Grapes of Wrath mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So it's, it's not just about Roosevelt, but, you know, as you say, it's impossible to, to talk about the New Deal and talk about the Great Depression in America without thinking of Roosevelt, at least in passing. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a testament to its importance that you still, like, that's the first thing I think about when I think of Franklin Roosevelt and not World War Two. You know, <laughs> I mean, that shows maybe the, how much of a crisis... Strangely, the, 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 first, well. the first thing I think about when I think of it, and this maybe shows my interest in history, when I think of Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt, is the great picture uh, from you know, World War II of the Yalta Conference of Churchill, Roosevelt mm. and Stalin, you know, all sitting, sitting together, kind of, you know, looking quite jolly and affable and all that kind of thing. Interestingly, that's the first thing I think of when I think of, of Roosevelt, yeah. is that image from the very end, when he was, a, when he was an ill man. Yeah. You know, late in World War Two at the at the Yalta conference. So maybe just different interests, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. So I mean as we as we come towards the end of this then um, I mean what kind of legacy would you would you ascribe the New Deal, Alistair? You know, a small question. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that I mean, just what you were talking about there, I mean what Roosevelt and the New Deal as that complete package represented. It was an opportunity for you know rapid transformation to take place in you know off the back of a landslide election in 1932 for that initial hundred days to set the pace and momentum for the rest of the 1930s in terms of what the Roosevelt administrations tried to do, um, and I think a lot of policymakers now would look back on that and say. You know, that was, you know, look at our political system now and our inability to push through any legislation. You know, this this is, it was quite an unusual time and it really was a, you know, a, a sort of political revolution in many ways with Roosevelt as the face of it. I'd say probably that was the most important, other than the, the, I mean, the public image of what the presidency is now. Um, and that was probably one of the most important lasting legacies of the New Deal. Yeah, political revolution. That's not a bad legacy. And, and the demonstration of you know the the need for you know despite resistance to it, the need for government intervention uh, to solve the the problems of a challenge that ordinary Americans on their own can't face. The government needs to be there, yeah. and this you know this sets up as you commented about earlier debates that still exist in America today about the role of the federal it's government. Increased since yeah, I mean, like, the size of the federal you government. Know, Mark, you know from your own research about Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Johnson's trying to complete the New Deal. You know, in, yep. in many ways, when at the same time Ronald Reagan is, is leading the Democratic Party because of the New Deal. You know, so these great figures are. I mean, like 
FDR was Johnson's hero. And as I just said, you know, Reagan, you know, viewed Roosevelt as a very important person, albeit in a more negative sense. So, yeah, I'd say that's one part of the legacy is, is introducing this debate about the federal government, which to, to people who don't live in the United States might seem a slightly strange debate. Why are they so obsessed with it? But it is, after all, the United States of America. So you can, you know, there are two different points of view there that um, there used to be some overlap on, but there seems less and less now. The second thing I think as well is, is the sort of political side of it, is the, the New Deal coalition. Like when, when Herbert Hoover wins in 1928, it seems like Republicans, all, unless they nominate a terrible candidate or they decide to split up themselves, are going to the dominant party in American politics. Roosevelt changes all that. I mean, maybe Hoover had a hand in it too, but um, by just being a Republican who was in power in the Great Depression. But Roosevelt as well manages to, to bring minorities into the Democratic Party until today, um, despite the fact that the New Deal tried its best to actually not help American minorities so that Southern Democrats wouldn't be annoyed. Um, and also the Republicans, you know, were still the party of Lincoln, you know, and they formed just one part of this enduring New Deal coalition, which would take decades to break up and it would take the upheavals of the 60s and even longer after that uh, to fully break up. Um, so I mean, the New Deal in front, uh, New Deal's great legacy is this coalition, sort of liberal coalition that manages to hold together for for decades afterwards, um, which perhaps proves that you know they must have been doing something right. And as as one final point, that's like much smaller than than what you guys have been have been talking about, is that lots of those who are in, intimately involved in the New Deal, in the agencies and setting up programs and the politics of it, they're still around in American politics and government for decades afterwards, mm -hmm. the strong personal influence of these uh, these individuals. The one person I can think of is like, uh, you know, David Lilienthal, mm -hmm. who's in charge of the Tennessee Valley Authority, and who then who goes on to be a head of the American Atomic Energy Commission mm -hmm. in the late 40s and into the 50s. And the, so he, there's a man who's he's involved in one of the biggest New Deal projects, and then in the post-war period is involved in another huge new project, also involving energy, but in a, in a slightly different way. So uh, all these individuals who were like New Dealers, mm -hmm. you know, filter through American politics and government for the next few decades. And obviously Franklin's wife, Eleanor, remains around yep. until the 1960s as like a titan of the Democratic Party. And you know, Absolutely. it's been great to be able to talk about her a wee bit more, but obviously we're, we're limited by time. But she was the, the liberal angel on Franklin's shoulder anyway. Mm -hmm. Also writing a syndicated political column through until... Exactly. Yeah, through until the 1960s. Oh, there we go. That sums things up nicely. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, so I think that just about wraps up today, for today. So in the next episode of the American History 2, we are going to be talking about the second Red Scare and anti-communism. So Malcolm, I assume you've picked this topic for us. Um, so during the 1940s and 50s. So Alistair, thanks again for joining us today. Honestly, it's been brilliant. Uh, you know, it's always good to have an extra voice, especially one slightly more knowledgeable than both of us. It's almost been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you, honestly. And as usual, thank you to my co-host, Malcolm Craig. Thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye.